0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, along with some excursions into art, music, film, and technology. And this time we go inside the headset studio of digital artist Elaine Hui. Jennifer Walsh feels the resurgent joys of objects you might touch. Ornya Gallagher rediscovers the music of pre-revolutionary Paris, and they're prepping for the famine in Tom Sullivan's Irish language feature A But we begin in the art. Artist's virtual studio, Elaine Hoy's new solo show *Mimesis* involves works experienced on screen and in headsets, as well as in a new departure for the artist: some objects that have jumped the digital divide and now sit on the floor at Solstice in Navan. Culturefile took some walks in both R.L. and V.R. through the show with Elaine Hoy to hear about digital sculpting, the stupidity of crowds, and the amorality of technology. This part of the exhibition is one that I've got to put on some a headset to experience.
1: That's right. Um, it's a virtual reality artwork. Um, so you basically put on the headset. And this work kind of was very influenced by ideas of crowd contagion and the swarm and how we are mimetic in that sense. We will follow a crowd without really understanding why we are following a crowd. So this work, when you go in, you first meet a sort of a swarm, which is an A.I., which looks ghostly like a human and um, at times they will consume you and at times you will be outside them so i'm not
0: on for being consumed
1: (laughs) um yeah but it's not real (laughs) my name is elaine hoy Uh, i'm a new media artist and we're in solstice uh, our center in navan and we're at my new show Mimesis. I've used um, virtual reality, some video-based work, some motion capture, uh, some sculpture type work, fabric print. There's a sculpture made out of concrete as well, a very small one. That's a kind of a new departure and I kind of wanted to look at the materiality or the language around creating materials within a kind of a 3D space. So there's an expanded kind of digital or series of digital prints that all kind of reference the material that's applied to the avatar in my digital performance. And some of their, you know, you'll see metal and emissive light and textures and kind of weird shapes and they're all kind of referencing basically the processes I use in which to make a material that's applied to a 3D model. See, I go in and sculpt in VR. I make my 3D models while I'm standing in virtual space. I'm physically sculpting them in virtual space, walking around them. For that, I was kind of interested in 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 you know the avatar that you see on the screen. It, yes, it looks alive, but actually it's That's exactly it's the same the process. Okay.
2: Um, and this is also for for COVID precautions. So this is
3: a rubber piece that goes over the headgear. So the part of the head of the ore set that touches your face will be covered with a band that we can then remove and uh, clean, etc., and leave for 72 hours. Okay?
0: It's all increasing the the vibe of uh, bondage dungeon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm not going to comment
1: on that. Now, if you just give me one more... When you
0: go go to work, what's that room look like? Where are you working?
1: Um, I'm usually in a room with a couple of really large screens because I'm half blind. Um, And then I put on my headset and I go into... I spend quite a lot of time in the the virtual reality headset. I work within it um, for most of my processes. Uh, I scoped in it. You know, you're constantly going in, kind of building environments in it and testing them out and building the environments in VR so you're physically standing like that work the VR work you did I was in that world building it physically or virtually but as a bodily presence for me there and a weird bodily absence because the VR headset allows you to view whatever it is that you're making in a three dimensional form so it is a three dimensional viewer essentially so everything that you see on the screen is also what I see in there but in 3D. So um, when you go into the VR work, that's very much exactly what I see as well, three-dimensional forms. You use your controllers as uh, kind of hands, and there's even hands in there, so it looks like you're using your physical hands. They're responding to your hands, so you're... You know, you're basically a disembodied head and hands but kind of walking around building stuff in virtual space on your own, (laughs) which is quite strange. But I really like that process of the physicality of me doing it rather than kind of moving a mouse around a screen. I like the physicality of going in because I walk around the space and I move around it as I would a real sculpture in physical space. My body's involved in the whole process of making and building.
0: I'm seeing the the running man who's sort of uh, like one of those video game characters stuck in the corner of a scene it's just kind of running on the spot now there are hundreds of that same fella rioting around me feel quite like a ghost all these people are sort of running through me it must put your your body when you come out of that environment into a into a very strange kind of space
1: there's no sense of time so there's no daylight no night there's no time passing in VR so you have no indication of how long you've been in there whether you've been in 10 hours or two hours you have no sense of time so that's always a bit strange when I come out and I realize that it's you know two o'clock in the morning and I've been in there for eight hours so time is a weird has a weird dimension in there it can feel very short
4: that's it
0: okay
2: yeah so do you want me to remove the headset for you
0: yeah thank you very much
2: mind your glasses there Got them.
0: They're just sort of embedded in the headset <laughs> there. <laughs> When you walk into the gallery, you see two very large um, video screens kind of p- positioned maybe like they were um, two eyes.
1: Uh, so that work is called Slow Atrophy Swells. It's a digital uh, performance work. Um, I perform it myself and I use kind of new technologies like uh, facial capture and motion capture. So what
0: we see is an avatar.
1: Yeah, it's a new release called a metahuman and they're the newest type of digital human And I wanted to kind of take this really uncanny uh, looking being and start to think about having it critique itself, but also critique humans. And it's almost monstrous in a way, you know, in that kind of Mary Shelley Frankenstein, I'm creating a monster here. And uh, I'm also interested in the fact that it's grafting my data, you know, which I think a lot of technology does, like AI um, and the kind of new technologies are kind of basically harvesting the human.
0: Do you feel when you've created a piece like that or done the digital performance that you've lost something to the avatar?
1: I think there's two aspects of this that interests me. One is the kind of negative side, which is the critique of where is this all going, but also this other side of... The idea that identity is fluid—that we can be whoever we want to be—we can play with that, and and around kind of Catherine Hale's how you know her cyborg manifesto. This idea that identity is much more fluid on the internet, and how technology has opened up conversations around where identity should be and where it should go. So they're really interesting conversations that this kind of thing can bring up. Uh, you know, in a kind of a post-human way, we're learning to live with this is a reality. So, how do we navigate this reality? Ultimately, it's just a piece of hardware and software. We've got to do something with it as humans. We need to find its potential, past, entertaining us or or killing us. <laughs> There's not much in between. Ultimately, there is no necessarily bad technology; just bad humans.
0: Elaine Huy there, and Mimesis runs at Solstice Art Centre Navin until November. If you're ready for a trip to the cinema but finding the current offerings all tent pole and no tent, director Luke McManus would like to draw your attention to a home cultured gem that could provide the lure. Just Out is the long-delayed feature from actor-director Tom Sullivan. A is a dark period piece set in the west of Ireland as the famine takes hold, starring Donal O'Haley as a fisherman slash dealer intent on surviving apocalyptic times. Luke McManus spoke to the director and his leading man.
5: Cinema was one of the first casualties of the pandemic. Like all of us, it's only now emerging, blinking and somewhat shell-shocked into the light. The movies announce their return by rolling out the biggest gun of them all. But James Bond has some company at the box office in the form of Coleman Sharkey, the hero of Aracht, a new Irish film that, appropriately enough, shows a society in crisis in the face of a virulent infection. You might remember Aracht's writer and director Tom Sullivan as an actor. He rather presciently played an ambitious filmmaker in John Crowley's debut, Intermission. His own debut feature is nothing like Crowley's energetic urban caper. Archt is a measured, beautifully realized portrait of 19th century Connemara on the eve of disaster. A year to was.
3: My films always begin with character and usually with uh, some type of major flaw or trauma. That's the meat and bones of most stories. Coleman, the main character, is a Puchin maker, fisherman who lives on the west coast of Ireland in the early 1840s. He's also an expert in medicine and healing that has been passed down from generations. So he's an individual who is doing very well when the famine hits. The story started to grow from that. This had been, it had been leading up for two, three hundred years before this, our over-reliance on the potato crop, people losing tradition, losing their different ways of hunting, of fishing, different ways that we, used to, um, that we used to survive. Coleman is somebody who hasn't forgotten this.
5: The character is at the story's heart, and Donal O'Haley, the actor who plays the role, Is undoubtedly the heart of the film. It's the kind of career defining performance that comes along once a decade.
6: When Tom approached me initially with a script and he said that he was thinking about this idea and he sent on some, you know, kind of a rough draft of a script and I had a read of it and I guess it was rare because, you know, as an actor you're constantly reading material but for me it was reading material that I Resonated with me very, very immediately in the sense of, you know, I think ten minutes into reading what he'd sent me, it dawned on me, you know, had I been born 170 years ago, this fate, this may very well have been my story, um, especially because of where it was set in in Connemara, um, in Mulan, not far from where I grew up and where some of my mother's family are from. So there was a very visceral, um, immediate connection with with the writing, and so it was just one of those scripts where. I knew it had to, I, I wanted to do it and I, I knew I kind of had to do it. Tom was also very adamant in that he didn't want to show kind of mass starving people. He really wanted to focus down on, on the individual. Um, and, and that's also an interesting part of the story in, in, in its kind of chronology because you start off in arc with the community and then it goes to the family and then it's finally distilled to the individual and that is Coleman. So I knew very early on that I had to I guess go the distance to portray that um, as accurately and graphically as I could, and you know, truthfully, I felt a responsibility as an Irish actor, as an Irish artist, to to approach the role with that type of integrity and, and reverence. You know, because any time you're dealing with your with your national history um, and with your people's history, you know, it it, it really it calls um, for that type of dexterity and and uh, intentionality. That involved losing, I guess, a stone each month for four months. So I I think I started the journey at about 13, three quarters. And then by the time we got to shooting Arak, that was just kind of around nine and a half stone. Um, But, you know, as severe as that sounds, and it was quite a difficult (laughs) endeavour, mentally especially, I felt very lucky as an actor that there was that in to the character because you're always looking for your way in to tell any story. And I knew that if I... Focused on the physicality of Coleman that that would take me to where I needed to be psychologically and that was the case so As difficult as it was. I was actually very grateful um, For it too
3: because he had to drop all the weight. He was forced to become a method actor And he learned that that's the way he would want to do all roles from now on that you put yourself in the world of the Character as much as you can and then when you turn up on set you actually don't have to act and that is almost what you need from a great film actor, is that they're in front of the camera, but they're not acting. They've forgotten. They're just
5: being. That's what Donald did for us. The chilling moment when Coleman first smells the potato blight in the wind presented a unique filmmaking challenge. When, when I was shooting
3: it, people were worried uh, um, that it wouldn't come across. You know, how do you get a smell to come across But the guys who did the music, Kiela, did this incredible, almost rotting sound. That's how we did it. We've done it through sound. So we almost did smell through
6: sound, not through visual. If Aurok chose anything, it chose the... Survival instinct of the human spirit. I think that's the real message of the film, and I, so I, I, I think it's a story that has great relevance today for many reasons. Um, and I guess again to reiterate that it's a story of of hope and survival. And I just you know I, I'm I hope I'm confident, or I hope that that'll be <laughs> you know that that's what we can take from it. I also think as a film, it didn't
5: feel like this is from the Wind That Shakes the Barley, Michael Collins, Black Forty Seven. World To me, it's very much in The Road, The Revenants. It's a much more psychologically interesting and sort of universal kind of a take on it all.
6: It's, it's really an individual story of survival, and it could be set 200 years in the, in the future even, you know, and just what, what that part that's within us all that propels us forward, even in those moments where there is no light or there is no hope, but yet we strive on, and I think that's the incredible thing about you know the, about human beings, you know. Donal O'Haley there,
0: and you heard also from director Tom Sullivan, and they were talking to Luke McManus. A rock is in cinemas where nationwide. Now, an invite to the salon of Anne-Louise Brion de Jouy was a dream come true for the average pre-revolutionary Parisian party boy and girl. Not just because Madame Brion de Jouy, who sat for Fragonard, was a magnet for celebrities, from Boccherini to Benjamin Franklin, who roomed with her neighbour, Monsieur Leroy de Chaumont, Grand Master of Water and Forests and Honorary Intendant of the Invalides, but that's quite literally another story. The real glittering attraction Of a session at the Briand was that Madame might play, and might play her own music. The whole salon scene cooled considerably, what with the revolution and all, and though she continued writing music, like so many women composers, Brienne de Jouy's music went unpublished and all but forgotten. But come 2021, her piano solo music, played by Nicholas Horvath, has been gathered together for the first time on Brienne de Jouy, the piano sonatas discovered. Anya Gallagher reports.
7: Some of the music by women that has been recorded, some pianists think, well, this is by a woman and she was an aristocrat, so it must be very delicate. And we have to play very sweetly and carefully because she was a titled woman. And Nicholas Orvat, as a pianist, he takes the opposite approach, that this is living music that you would have played with great verb! he really just plays the heck out of this music.
2: I just realized how we didn't know all about the history of women in classical music, because when we talk about classical music, it's all about Mozart, Beethoven, Bach. My name is Aliette Delaleu and I'm a journalist, a French journalist, working on classical music and especially on women in classical music. When I hear some of their music and don't understand why we can't just tell them this is great music I'm not sure a great piece is just born like a great piece. We have to tell stories about it, we have to, to know the, the people who wrote this kind of piece of music and I'm sure Women just didn't get the chance to have all the storytelling about about their music. And today, when we discover uh, this music, we have to listen to them a lot. And we have some the greatest artists to record them. And maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, we're going to say it's a great music. And so let's get talking about the specific woman that we're here today to talk about, who is Madame Brion. Yeah, people came to her because she was very important, she knew a lot of people, but she was a great musician, and uh, her daughter too, so I guess when people went to Brillant de Jouy, it was because of the music, but because of the people, and the be- people there, and because of her, because she was very influent, and she knew people, and she could just make some connection between people. She was a woman that people wanted to miss at that time. And to be around. It was very important to be around her.
7: Well, my name's Deborah Hayes, and I'm retired from the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I taught musicology. Madame Briand de Jouy. She was known in her time as a fantastic pianist, but she was an aristocrat, uh, well, a noble, in a noble family. Her husband was nobility. So she didn't ever publish her music or perform really publicly. She performed at a, what we now call a salon at home, invited people to her house. So people knew of her. But, you know, today in the United States and in Europe, we think of successful composers as people who have a lot of public concerts and publish all their music. And it's the opposite in this period of about the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s. It was much more valued to have a professional but private career. And she was very much involved in current music, She had all sorts of musicians come and perform in her salon, so she knew all about opera and all about the latest orchestral music and the latest keyboard music. She was quite an inventor on the piano. What about her writing is distinctive to her? Well, I think... I know some people look at the music and they say, oh, it's, you know, there are these melodies and there's these accompaniment figures and it's very much in the style of of Mozart and Haydn and her contemporaries. But when performed well, the way Nicholas Orvat performs them, it's really exciting music. When he was recording these, he kept saying, she's just a genius. She does, oh, look at what she does here. She invented techniques that pianists have always thought started with Czerny and Liszt, the better known virtuosos of kind of the next generations. But all this is in her music.
2: She wrote almost 100 piece of music. But it was very intimate music. A lot of women in history just wrote music we can hear in a small group of people in a private place. So we found a lot of music for the pianoforte, a lot of leader. um, It's called Melody, Melody in French. And uh, for voice and um, music uh, for just small group of instruments. It was not symphony, it was not Opera, it was not a huge piece of music that can be published and can be here in a theatre and something. The new recording of Nicholas Horvat playing her sonatas... That's probably a really big step for her music to be heard and therefore then the music sought by musicians to play. I think it's a it's a great step for her and for all the women in history who just got forgotten because we can talk about their story and how important they were because of the letters, because of the the biography we found about them, but when you hear when we hear the music We can just have an, another way of dealing with their lives and maybe one recording is not enough. We have to record her music with different uh, instruments and I would love to hear it like from different people and maybe in concert too, because it's very different to hear the music recorded and in concert. And, um, and I hope people can hear the music, like the music and maybe do something else with it.
0: Aliette de Lalleux there, and you heard also from Deborah Hayes. Ornya Gallagher was the reporter. Brouillant de Jouy, the piano sonatas discovered, is on the Grand Piano label. And finally this week, Jennifer Walsh with her latest Things Know Things, which this time springs from a visit to a Neolithic site in County Clare.
4: A few years back... The family went on holiday to Ballyvachan in County Clare. One evening, as dusk was drawing in, we went to see the Pool dolmen. Now, Pool is spectacular. If you haven't been, you should go. The dolmen stands on a desolate height over the road, an angled table built from slabs of rock many, many thousands of years old. Unusually enough, We were the only people visiting, and we lingered for a while and got chatting to the man from the Office of Public Works who was checking the site over. The OPW man explained to us that he loved his job, he loved taking care of the dolmen, but that the bane of his existence were the dolmen selfies. People had no respect. People were climbing over the rope that cordoned off the dolmen they were climbing inside of or on top of the dolmen and worst of all were the naked dolmen selfies. He understood that people were drawn to the dolmen, that they were moved by it, that they were affected by it but come on now lads, like really? Last week, I went to see the Izamo Noguchi retrospective that's currently on at the Barbican here in London. Born in California to an Irish-American mother and Japanese father, Noguchi is considered one of the finest artists of the 20th century. The exhibition is stunning, room after room filled with gorgeous artworks made from marble, wood, paper... Noguchi sculptures are beautiful and thoughtful, just crying out to be touched. Of all the works on display, the one that struck me the most was the model Noguchi made for a proposed memorial for the victims of Hiroshima. It is a low, squat arch made from massive blocks of black granite, about two metres across, a metre high and maybe 70 centimetres thick. The sculpture seems sentient somehow. It seems to brood and and also to judge. It has a presence that rooted me to the spot that made me want to return to it, to be re-rooted again and again. Make no mistake... I have felt all possible depths of emotion as a result of the images, text, and sounds that have reached me on my various screens over the last 18 months. But I have dearly missed being acted upon by other things. I have missed what human-made objects and architectures can do, the spaces they can open up for us and inside us, the emotions they can allow us to access. I have missed being in other rooms with other objects, allowing them to exert their strange gravity. Back at home, I read how Noguchi's grandfather, Andrew Gilmore, was an Irish immigrant and anarchist who plotted to overthrow the US government. I wonder if Noguchi ever came to Ireland. I would love to have seen what he'd have made of Poole-Nebron.
0: Jennifer Walsh there, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more semi tangible experiences next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.